The following recording is a presentation of the Berean Baptist Church of Rohnert Park, California, and of Pastor Val Mark Smith. We are an independent Baptist congregation committed to the accurate presentation of the historical doctrines of the faith. We welcome your visit to our services anytime here in the Rohnert Park area. And I'd like you to open your Bibles, if you would please, to Exodus chapter 25. Exodus 25. I think we can say, hopefully, the tabernacle is an intriguing study. It has many, many interesting parts. I believe our many months of study through this has proved this. And this afternoon, what we're going to talk about is the light of the tabernacle, uh, the interior light of the tabernacle, which was produced by a single light source of the entire structure, which our King James Version calls the candlestick. Of the many components of tabernacle worship and as a sign for Israel, uh, there probably isn't a symbol that is as recognizable and as purely Jewish as the candlestick. Now, the only exception to that might be the Star of David that flies on Israel's flag. But today, the candlestick, what we're studying here, is known as a menorah. And in the week of Hanukkah, which overlaps the Christmas season, you can go to Union Square in San Francisco and you can see the lighting of the menorahs. Um, I mentioned this some time ago when, uh, well, it's been quite some time ago, we looked at the candlestick once before, that interestingly down at the lighting of those menorahs, they have the Billy Graham menorah. And I I thought about that, it really didn't make a whole lot of sense to me. I mean, I, I understand support for the Jews, but a Christian supporting an ancient Jewish ritual of people that are injection of Christ really doesn't make a whole lot of sense to me because the menorah, the candlestick in the Old Testament is a representation of Jesus Christ. And that's what we're going to talk about, how this candlestick, the lampstand, represents our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And I enjoy the study of the candlestick because it's probably the least complicated type in Scripture Uh, With some of the components of tabernacle worship, you might think that we have to stretch a little bit to make all of the connections. And and there's there's reason for people to believe it. Well, maybe there's no connection at all because some of them are quite difficult for us. But when we come to this, the candlestick is much different because there are so many references to light in the scripture that it would be difficult for us not to see the connections, no pun intended. It starts all the way back in Genesis chapter 1 with a dark world that was without form and void. There was no light in the universe, and of course there were no eyes that would see the light. But I think it would be incongruous at best to think that God would create a dark world, even if there wasn't anyone to see the light. And the reason that he wouldn't is because the scripture says that God is light. It says there is no darkness in him. So immediately upon creating the basic form of the earth, the Bible said, and God said, let there be light, and there was light. And throughout the scriptures, this separation of darkness from light is an enduring symbol uh, of sanctification of all things holy and righteous. Light and darkness is the dichotomy of good and evil. It's the difference of God and Satan. It's man redeemed and man lost. God is Light, the scripture says. And you need to make the distinction that light is not God, of course, but God 
is light. He dwells in the brightness of unapproachable light. So light is the expression of the visible glory of God. And God's glory is so intense that you remember Moses went up on the mountain and he was shielded from God's glory when he approached God. God is light and Jesus is God. So Jesus is light. Now, since this is the most widely used expression of the glory of God, we would expect in the tabernacle of Israel in the Old Testament that there would be some manifestation of this symbolism. I mean, to leave out light would be a glaring omission. And again, just the use of the word glaring, no pun intended there, but it shows how it's almost impossible for us to even talk if we don't use things that reference light. We can hardly speak without it. So the tabernacle, as we've taught, is God dwelling with us. The tabernacle is about the incarnation of God, God dwelling with us. He dwells with us in the person of his son, Jesus Christ, and Jesus was the physical presence of God. Now he dwells with us in the spirit of Christ, the Holy Spirit. And so the candlestick gives us a representation of the Trinity, that the Father God is light, Jesus the Son is light, and the Holy Spirit is light. Well, in our study of the tabernacle, we've been round and round the structure. We've been into the courtyard to see the linen fence. We've talked about the altar that's in the courtyard. We've talked about the brazen labor. We've looked at the tent structure, the boards and the bars, the coverings that go over it. We've talked about the uh, linen, uh, rather the uh, uh, the uh, door by which the tabernacle is entered. And so we've been round and round in all these weeks of study. We've yet to go inside. And when you pushed aside, when the priest pushed aside the heavy linen door to enter, without this light, there would be no blackness. There is no lighting scheme of natural light in the tabernacle. Of course, there isn't any artificial light. And so inside is intense blackness, except that God would say, let there be light. So darkness would be the tale of the tabernacle if it was not for this beautiful furnishing of the candlestick that's made of pure gold. The instructions for making it are given in Exodus 25, verses 31 through 40. So if you look in your Bibles there, beginning at verse number 31, this is the command that came through Moses given by God. And thou shalt make a candlestick of pure gold, of beaten work shall the candlestick be made, his shaft and his branches, his bowls, his knops, and his flowers shall be of the same. And six branches shall come out of the sides of it, three branches of the candlestick out of the one side, and three branches of the candlestick out of the other side. Three bowls made like unto almonds with a knop and a flower in one branch, and three bowls made like almonds in the other branch with a knop and a flower, so in the six branches that come out of the candlestick. And in the candlestick shall be four bowls made like unto almonds with their knops and their flowers. And there shall be a knop under two branches of the same, and a knop under two branches of the same, and a knop under two branches of the same, according to the six branches that proceed out of the candlestick. Their knops and their branches shall be the same. All it shall be one beaten work of pure gold. And thou shalt make the seven lamps thereof, and they shall light the lamps thereof, that they may give light over against it. And the tongs thereof, and the snuff dishes thereof, shall be of pure gold. Of a talent of pure gold 
shall he make it with all these vessels. And look that thou make them after their pattern, which was showed thee in the mount. Some of that seems very, very confusing. So it's best that we see it in just a few moments in pictures. So you can have an idea of what this looks like. But before we do that, if you look at the arrangement of this chapter, you'll notice that first in this chapter, in chapter 25, there are instructions for making the Ark of the Covenant and the mercy seat. Second, there is the making uh, construction of the table of showbread that's placed against the north wall of the tabernacle. And then thirdly, there is this candlestick. And looking at it at first, we might think, well, what we should do is follow the order that's given in the scriptures. But I decided that we wouldn't do that. We would start with the candlestick because you wouldn't be able to see any of the other things that are on the inside because when you pushed aside the curtain, there wouldn't be any light. If you remember that short video that we looked at the beginning of the series, I, uh, we looked at, I, I, I was happy that we found that because uh, it kind of gave a visualization that I hadn't imagined before of what the inside of the tabernacle must have looked like as the light that shined from this candlestick just bounced around off the polished golden boards of the inside so that the light reflected into every recess and lit the entire place up. Now, I was speaking of these menorahs at Union Square at uh, Hanukkah season, and that reminded me of the visit that we made to, uh, to Israel a few years ago. And one of the places that we visited was a museum that was called the Treasures of the Temple that's located in the Jewish quarter of the old city. And this museum is a display vehicle for the Temple Institute, which is an organization that's in the process of making temple furnishings that would be put into a new temple that they hope to build on the Temple Mount. Now, inside this museum, there are replicas displayed of items that they're making. And we weren't supposed to take pictures while we were on the inside. That's the rule, but rules are made to be broken. So uh, I snapped this next photo of our, of our guide. And uh, this lady's name... Uh, was Zipporah. That's um, Moses' wife's name. Now, that's not Moses' wife. I, I'm not sure if there was any connection to that. I mean, probably was. But if you look behind her, you see some, some uh, pieces there. The left-hand side, there's a uh, gold pot. And then on the right, there's some kind of a stand that I'm not familiar with what the purpose of that is. But that would be typical of things that they're right now making to go into a new temple that they hope to build on the Temple Mount. And then I thought that I would show you this next picture. Uh, this is an artist conception of uh, what the temple might look like. And if you look very, very closely down in the bottom right hand, you'll see Gary taking a picture. And uh, so he, he's taking a picture and he's breaking the Ten Commandments by taking that picture, which he was strictly forbidden to do. Uh, since that time, both of us have been cursed, quite frankly. We've had arthritis and everything else and I, I thought maybe what we ought to do is make a golden offering of emeralds like the Philistines did but that wouldn't be appropriate would it so but anyway this is what they thought that that would look like but then in the next picture this is the really the one we're trying to get to uh, this is the menorah uh, it was enclosed this one's enclosed in a, in a glass case that's kind of like a guidepost a marker that directs you 
towards the location of the museum. And I think it's interesting uh, to, to visit this place because you hear you have these, these Jews that want their temple back and they believe that the Old Testament scriptures are correct as it says in the book of Ezekiel that there will be a new temple and they also believe that animal sacrifices will be reinstituted. Now Hanukkah sees and looks back to the second temple, looks back to the time of Esther actually and uh, it was the temple that was built after the captivity. It, it remembers that construction, but it also remembers a vastly inferior temple to the one that Solomon built, and then to the third temple that will be built on the Temple Mount during the millennium when Christ comes. Now, the picture of the candlestick that we're using for our study is the one that I want to show you next. Uh, this is uh, an artist's conception of it. And I think I like this one a little bit better because it's brighter. It more depicts the highly polished gold from which it was made. Now, I want you to notice, though, in our text that the candlestick is referred to with many personal pronouns. In verse number 31, it was to be made of pure gold. It says his shaft, his branches, his bowls, his knops, his flowers... And if you read the rest of this chapter, you'll notice that those descriptions are not used in the table of showbread that comes before this. Not even in the Ark of the Covenant are these pronouns used. And I think that may be significant because it shows that the candlestick assuredly represents a person. And that person is Jesus Christ. He is the light by which we see God. Now, we also notice that this is a lampstand not normally what we think of as a candlestick. I mean, when you think of a candlestick, I mean, in our, in our language today, a candlestick is like a, a single wax candle or a candle holder that has a wax candle standing up in it. At Christmas time, we place our version of a lampstand on both sides of the auditorium. It has seven wax candles that stand up in the receptacles. But this candlestick is not like that. Instead, it is, as you see, it's a, a central staff that has six branches on it. Three come out of each side. And at the end of these branches, there is a little receptacle with a wick. And then on the top, and unfortunately you can't see it in this picture, but at the top, there is another receptacle that makes a total of seven lights. Then the next picture that we have is a picture of the priest pouring oil into these little receptacles. And then when he was finished, the wicks were lit, that made the light, and the priest would regularly check the level of the oil in the bowl so that the lampstand wouldn't go out and leave it dark. And so morning and evening, the wicks that went into it were trimmed, oil was added, so the priest would never need to enter a totally darkened room. Leviticus chapter 24 explains this. It says, And the Lord spake unto Moses, saying, Command the children of Israel that they bring unto thee pure olive oil, beaten for the light, to cause the lamps to burn continually. Without the veil of the testimony, in the tabernacle of the congregation shall Aaron order it from the evening unto the morning before the Lord continually. It shall be a statute forever in your generations. He shall order the lamps upon the pure candlestick before the Lord continually. So in the tabernacle... There is a perpetual light that burns. We're going to deal with that issue a little bit later on. We'll talk about the significance of that part. But still looking at the mechanics of this, 
You'll notice in the scriptures it says that they were to use pure olive oil. This was oil that was brought by the people. They were charged with the supply of oil just as they were other things that were brought to make the tabernacle like gold and silver and brass and so on. And they were to bring olive oil. There wasn't any other type of oil that could be used. Now I'll just throw in a little bit more information. Uh, before the era of electricity, uh, you know that lighthouses use whale oil. That's what they use as fuel for the light. People would also use that in their homes. Whale oil is what caused Captain Ahab to lose his leg to Moby Dick. And um, so you, you see there's other types of oil for burning, uh, but God would not accept anything but pure olive oil. And that's a very interesting requirement because the Israelites had ability. I mean, these ancient peoples had the ability to extract other oils, but the refinement of this oil was paramount. Other oils that they could, they could extract was fish oil. They knew how to get fish oil. There's almond oil. They knew how to get that as well. But they couldn't use that. The scripture says this must be olive oil. And then there are several methods to obtain olive oil. But the oil that's used in the lampstand could only be taken from olives that were beaten in a mortar. This had to be handwork. It was very intense hand labor. Now, if you've been to Israel, you, you would see some of the presses that they used to, the ancient peoples would use to make, uh, to, to press out olive oil. Uh, and you would have a mill, you'd have a millstone. But the Israelites were not allowed to do that because a millstone leaves fine little particles of the stone in the oil, and the oil wouldn't be pure. So this is oil that had to be beaten by hand. It has to have the olive in a mortar and a pestle, and it had to come out clean and pure. And I'm sure that you could see the significance of that because purity is paramount in any discussion that we have of the character of Christ. These are symbolisms. Remember that. These are types of the Lord Jesus Christ. And, and always that type must be preserved. Then another look at the description in Exodus 25 shows how much detail that there was put into the artwork to make this candlestick exceedingly beautiful. The little bowls that held the oil, had a design underneath that was like a blossoming flower. That was an almond flower. And you might remember the significance of, of almonds in the Old Testament. That was the test for Aaron's priesthood, remember? How did they know that Aaron was called from God? Well, they took a, an, olive, or rather a, a, an almond branch, cut it off a tree, made a staff or had a staff, and that olive branch, or, I'm sorry, almond branch, blossomed and bore almonds on it. And that was the sign that Aaron was the high priest of God. Then we think about how much time that it would take to make this, this article. Let's, let's roll it back there for just a second. You're going to have to skip around with me a little bit there. Uh, yeah, that's good enough. That, that's better. We'll look at that for just a minute as I'm talking. How much time would it take to make that? Uh, I'm not an artisan. And I would think, well, the way that you would make something like this is that you would make maybe those little bowls first, and, or you would make the, the almond blossoms underneath the little bowls, and you would take all of that, you'd melt it against the little branches that come out, then in turn you would melt those branches, heat it all up and melt them against the central shaft, and then you'd put all of that together separately. But that doesn't appear the way that this one was made. God said in verse number 36 
Their knops and their branches shall be the same. All it shall be one beaten work of pure gold. Now I look at that and I think that Bezaleel, the one chosen by God to make this, must have been a magician. Practically, he was told to make this out of one lump of gold. And so he, it was beaten and fashioned in one piece. And he made this outstanding lampstand that was gorgeous. Now, either it was done that way or it was done Aaron's way. Aaron would have just taken a lump of gold, tossed it in the fire, and out comes a golden calf. Or in this case, uh, of course, uh, a lampstand. But you know that doesn't work. So what God must have done was to supernaturally gift Bezalel with the ability to do this. Then the golden candlestick was also the most expensive of the furnishings. The candlestick, the snuff dishes, and the tongs and those things that went with it were all made of a talent of gold. The talent was about 75 pounds. Uh, I would have to ask Matt about this, but gold prices are probably, what, about $1,400 an ounce right now? Just under 15. All right. Well, with my calculations at $1,400 an ounce, you have uh, 75 pounds. There's 12 ounces in 75 pounds. And 12 times 1,200 times $1,400 makes $1.7 million. So you can see why Israel's enemies wanted to raid the temple. Why did the Babylonians want to come and carry off all the treasures that were in the temple? Well, it has all of this gold. Now, in the Roman... Uh, destruction of Jerusalem in A.D. 70, the temple wouldn't have been destroyed if it hadn't been for all the gold that melted in the fire and then ran down into the cracks between the stones. And so those stones of the temple were literally torn apart and they were heaved over the, the wall so that soldiers could get at the gold. Now the, this next picture that we have, uh, go a little bit further down, that next one, uh, if you can see it, um, it shows breaks in the pavement below the Temple Mount where stones were heaved over the wall when they were trying to get at the gold. Now on the right side that you see there, that's the retaining wall that holds up the Temple platform. And then on the other side of this platform, there's the Western Wall. That's where the Jews go to say their prayers and they stuff little pieces of paper into the cracks that are in the wall. Now, there, there isn't any gold in that wall now, but just the hope that they have that one day they will be able to build a new temple. Now, in the next picture that we have, uh, you see the slips of paper that are uh, pushed into the wall. That's what we would call their version of the, of the prayer page. And that's kind of a moving sight when you go there and understand how desperately that these people want to have their temple back. They despise the mosque that's that's built on the temple now and so they want it back they want that area back for all the wrong reasons and for the wrong worship but Christ will correct all of that when he returns the scriptures tell us that in the tribulation the Jews will be turned back to the true worship of Jehovah God and then they will recognize Christ and they'll come to him for salvation and then they'll worship him at this beautifully new constructed temple in the millennium that will be the capital building, you might say, of a worldwide kingdom. Well, returning to the candlestick, it was the most expensive article. You remember other furnishings like the Ark of the Covenant, the table of showbread, the altar of incense, the boards and the bars. Those were wood that were covered in gold. 
They weren't solid gold like the candlestick. And there are many applications that can be made from the symbolisms of the candlestick. As I said, light and darkness, those are recurring themes throughout the scripture. So what are we going to talk about when we look at the candlestick? Well, I want us to focus on illumination. And I think there are at least four types of illumination that are pictured by the candlestick. And before we're through with this over the next few weeks, you might think of four more. You might think of a dozen more. But we're going to take these that that I've outlined for you. We're going to look at the first one. Uh, We'll just see how far that we get before time is up. But the first illumination that I'd like to speak to you about is the illuminating gospel, the light of Christ. The only light that is inside the tabernacle came from this golden candlestick. Now, God's presence in a brilliant light was behind the veil in the Holy of Holies, but that's blocked off by the veil. That can't be seen except one time each year, and that was on the Day of Atonement. So at all other times, the only light came from this lampstand, this candlestick. Now, the tabernacle wasn't designed to have any windows. There weren't any skylights. There are no translucent doors that would let sunlight in. Now, we look at that and we say, well, that's obvious a design flaw. That's a serious mistake. Who builds anything that doesn't let in natural light? Our daughter Clarissa moved to Kentucky just recently. They, they bought a house in the country. The whole backside of the house from a walkout basement all the way to the second floor is nothing but windows. I met the previous owner of this house and he told me I designed that house myself. Well, there are other features of the house that I didn't like, and it was obvious to me that he wasn't an architect, but he did have this right, the windows. The windows are attractive. They're beautiful. Natural light is great. And that works really well for a house design, but that didn't work for the tabernacle. The missing windows are not God's mistake. They're not his ineptitude at architectural design. God purposely stopped natural light from entering. So there's not a single ray of outside light that was permitted in the tabernacle. Now the priest then was to do his duties only by the light of this lampstand. And if he wanted to walk in natural light, he had to go outside. Outside, what's there? Not the beauty that's on the inside. On the outside, there's the desert. On the outside, there's howling winds. There's a barren and thirsty land. On the inside... Is where you find the beauty. Now he could see the magnificence of all the things that are in the tabernacle by what? Well, by the light of the lampstand. So the inside, the tabernacle, uh, inside of the tabernacle in this light reveals Christ, while the outside actually lends no clue to what's on the inside. I think that this pictures that on the outside, people can only walk by the light of their own reason. Do you understand the mess that we've made of things by never going inside? I mean, never going inside to see Christ? When we try to reason things out, think things through, without knowing Christ, we end up in a mess. In fact, we have a moral mess in our country. You look at the confusion. confusion. I mean, the most, the most basic elements of what it means to be human is unreasonably confused. Now we have people asking, what is a man? We can't even really define a man. We can't define what a woman is. Nobody knows what it is. 
Gender dysphoria is not considered any longer an aberrant psychiatric phenomenon that obviously needs to be fixed. No, that's just a natural expression of things that must be accepted and promoted. I read in the paper just the other day that children as young as three years old are now considered for sex change operations. The media moguls are determined to pull from their, from their shelves and their websites any information that promotes conversion therapy. Can I talk to you for just a minute about the Bible? The whole Bible is conversion therapy. Oh yes, there is a way to change people. And that's by the illuminating gospel of Jesus Christ. So gender dysphoria, gay lifestyles, transgenderism, all of that is sin according to the Holy Scriptures. And the gospel of Jesus Christ is for the purpose of changing us from sin to righteousness. Its purpose is to change us from the darkness of sin into the light of the kingdom of Christ. So the gospel, that's conversion therapy. Now, states that now ban conversion therapy are not going to end this matter by banning books that have uh, secular methodologies. Instead, that will extend to religion, it will extend to the Bible, it will extend to the church, and then it will go to teachers just like me until all of us are banned because we don't match the darkness of the world. Well, the light of human reason is not light at all. It's irrational. It's unnatural according to God's intended design. And here's the whole problem of the matter. The fall ruined man's reason. Human philosophies are the degradation of the perfect light that was fellowship with God at the beginning. And so in the fall, the true meaning of life was lost. The sanctity of life was lost. And now instead of preserving life as God does, we try to kill it. Basic human instincts are overruled by dark minds that cause a mother to want to kill her children. And that right to do it is demanded by others who have depraved minds and they have no conscience or understanding of how wrong it is. And this is a hole that just keeps getting deeper and deeper until one day God will say, that's enough. And God says the darkness is too dark. Just yesterday I was reading a news item. I believe this was um, maybe Germany, maybe, uh, I have to think for just a minute, maybe in Denmark, one of, one of those countries close there, and, and um, this was about a, a doctor who uh, euthanized a patient who was struggling and didn't want to be euthanized. And this was because sometime in the past she said, well, I'd like to die that way, but now she didn't want to. But they defended the doctor and said, that's all right. I mean, that's perfectly acceptable. That's medically okay. That's what we're coming to. Romans 1 calls this a reprobate mind. It's a mind that's so dark and calloused with sin that it's hardened against God-given natural sensibilities. I mean, doesn't the Bible say that the law of God is written on our heart? But it also says that we can become so calloused, we can reject the truth so many times that the conscience is seared, and then God will never shine the light in to convert and bring people to Christ. Natural light of human reason blinds people to the true light that's found only in the gospel of Jesus Christ. And yet, contrary to the scriptures and contrary to empirical evidence, of what we all know happens around us every day, there are still some people who believe that 
those in spiritual darkness have the power to walk out of it. That whenever they want, they can just walk out of it and come into the light. And so though the heart and the mind is depraved and has no desire for it, they can say, well, a person can change his desires. And they can do it without divine intervention. They can do it by simply an act of the will. We can change desires. That is a fundamental misunderstanding of the radical depravity of the fall. There is no light left in us. The light was extinguished by sin, and it requires a new kindling. It requires a divine illumination before it can be seen. And then there are some who say that natural light, natural light by itself, that's enough to save. I heard this argument for those who couldn't reconcile that God is just, even though he sends people to hell that have never heard the gospel. And so their conclusion is for God to be fair, a person must be able to live up to the light that he has and then he can be saved by that light. Uh, the only problem is Romans says no one has ever done that. And it says no one can do it. Because if they could, we would never need to send a missionary. If they could, we would do people a disservice by sending them missionaries because they would get a gospel that they might reject and thus send them to hell. And so the scriptures tell us that we are condemned already. People are condemned and they must have the true light of Christ. John wrote about Jesus. He said, that was the true light which lighteth every man that cometh into the world. Jesus said, I am the light of the world. He that followeth me shall not walk in darkness, but shall have the light of life. So how do we follow Christ? We follow him through the gospel. The gospel illuminates the soul to truth. It overcomes darkness. It's the light that penetrates the darkness of the depraved mind. Now the definition of the gospel is, and how that Christ did this is in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Now you're familiar with it. Uh, I only want to remind you that it says the gospel is how Christ died, how that he was buried and that he arose from the dead. Now, the import of that, the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ is a problem because there are plenty of people who assent to the facts of it. I mean, there's hardly anyone who denies historically that, yes, there was a man named Jesus. He lived approximately 2,000 years ago. Historically, it's true. Uh, this man was crucified, and they might even admit there could be a, some truth to the resurrection. And they have the facts, but they don't have the meaning of the facts. For those facts to have meaning to anyone, I mean, you can read them in the Bible, but for them to have meaning to you, they must be interpreted to us by a divine act of God. What God must do is to illuminate the mind. I mean, think about it for a minute. Who understands that a man beaten and placed on a cross 2,000 years ago has anything to do with our lives today? And then why? Why did he do that? Why must he be beaten and die? Well, this is interesting. Those are facts. Those are necessary facts because of the punishment that's due us. This is why Christ died. Um, he died because of sin. We owe a debt to the Creator. We owe a debt of obedience to his divine providence in giving us life and breath and all things. And so we owe him a debt of worship. And that debt must be paid. All of us are accountable to the creator. Now the only problem, which is an 
monumental problem is that we don't have anything to pay the debt with. Our debt is against an infinite God. And so the payment for it must be an infinite payment. How do we pay an infinite payment? And thus the problem. And thus the need for the gospel. How the debt is paid and how we see the light is a part of the story of the candlestick. Now let me give you one observation and we're going to stop here and we'll take up more next time. Would you look at verse number 31 of the text? And thou shalt make a candlestick of pure gold, of beaten work shall the candlestick be made. Of beaten work shall the candlestick be made. Letter A on your listening sheet, beaten gold represents the suffering of Christ. Now do you wonder why there is this language in scriptures? Could God have said it this way? He could have said, of melted and shapen gold. Thou shalt make it. The ESV says, The lampstand shall be made of hammered work. The artists, artisans hammering out the gold. The artisans beating the gold. That represents how Christ must be beaten. Christ must suffer. Christ must agonize with every blow against his body. The hammers driving the nails into his hands and his feet. And the smiting and the bruising and the tearing of the flesh with a cat of nine tails and with bits of flesh that are torn away from the bone with every strike. Each of those is the re release of a little ray of light. He was beaten and beaten and beaten. And with each blow, a little more light would show. And curiously, as after he suffered his worst torment, in his worst agony, God shut out all natural light. The sun was darkened. For the space of three hours when Christ agonized and made atonement for sin. And then when that was done, Christ lifted his eyes to heaven. He commended his spirit to God and he said, it is finished. And then he died. It is finished. And those of you that have studied that passage know that it means the payment is made. The sin debt that no person could pay was satisfied. The believer's sins were taken away and covered under the blood and sent away as far as the east is from the west. And in that moment, the gospel light was revealed and the way to God was opened. The veil of the temple, the Bible says, was ripped from the top to the bottom by an invisible hand. And then that light that was behind the veil shined out. And I'm not talking about a visible light because that light was no longer there. But it was a light that shined into the deepest recesses of the soul. The way to God was opened. Where sin abounded, grace did much more abound, Paul said. And the light penetrated the blackness of the soul that shrouded in darkness. A darkness that a lost person cannot escape. The light shined on them. 2 Corinthians 4, 6 says, For God, who commanded the light to shine out of darkness, has shined in our hearts to give the light to the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Would you notice in that passage it says, For God commanded the light to shine. That's not me. That's not you. That's the light of the gospel energized from the light source. And that is God. It's not you to know it. It's not you to see it. It's not you to realize it. It comes from God and God alone. Now, what is it that enabled this light to shine? Well, where is it founded? Well, it comes from the suffering. 
It comes from the penalty paid. It comes from reconciliation of the cross. Of beaten gold, the scripture says, you shall make it. And it was because Christ was beaten and suffered and died for us. I doubt that Bezalel knew what Moses intended, what God intended when he said, beaten gold. What did Moses mean by that? Why did he say that? Why did he want beaten gold? But I'm sure he knows it now because he's in heaven. And the antitype of the type that he made has shown this to him. The gold was God. And Jesus Christ is holy God who is beaten for our sins. Only God can satisfy God. And that's the illuminating gospel of Jesus Christ. Blessed be God for Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for Jesus Christ, who is the light of the world. Without that light, we would all be in darkness, spiritual darkness. We can't see, we can't know, we can't understand God unless the light of the glorious gospel of Christ should shine into our hearts. And as we've just read, Lord, we know that you are the one who commands it. All glory goes to you because... Without your work in our heart first, we would never understand, we would never come to you, and we would live forever in perpetual, perpetual darkness. And that means not just this life, but in the life beyond, people are in hell today in perpetual darkness because the light never shined into their hearts. Thank you, Lord, for revealing the gospel of Jesus Christ to us, and we give you the praise for it. In his name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this presentation of the Berean Baptist Church of Ronan Park, California. If you would like further information about our church, please feel free to call us at area code 707-584-7275 or write to us at Berean Baptist Church, 6298 Country Club Drive, Ronan Park, California, 94928. Additionally, you may visit us on the World Wide Web at www dot bbaptist dot org